the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour three. It is a delight to bring back Dean Pete Peterson. Pete Peterson is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is website. He is a mind alive, as is his school. For those interested in a career in public policy, you won't find anywhere better. Pete, welcome back. How you been, man? Real good, Seth. Uh, wrapped up all the traveling for the year, so uh, great to be back in back home in Malibu. You have been logging the miles. I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> I hope I hope you understand um, the levels of sacrifice we go to around here for you. Uh, we changed our entire Christmas music opening hour theme song to The Waitresses, that song you just heard, because yeah, we think that's as close, as asymptotically close as we can get to the kind of music you used to perform in your younger and more vulnerable years. Very well selected. Very well okay. selected. My, my hat's off. Okay. My hat's off. All right. I mean, we couldn't find ska in its pure form, <laughs> but we, we, we came close with something quasi-punk, I think. No, that's very good. Okay. Very good. All right. So much to talk about. Hell of a year. Um, Mm. In academia, what's the story of the year? Pete, I'll give you my nominations. I'd love to hear yours. My nominations are um, the triumph of DEI over language and reality. We don't even call it plagiarism if committed by the right or wrong person. We now call it and give it Orwellian names like duplicative language. Mm. I would say the Mm. other story is the um, under the rock discovery of anti-Semitism so widespread. I wonder if you agree Mm. or have your own nominees. No, I think those are pretty good. I I, I do think that the second one that you bring up, though, has a lot of uh, real estate there um, in that the anti-Semitism that has been discovered within academia is uh, what I describe as not your father's anti-Semitism. Okay. Um, this is a uniquely, uh, what I describe as an ideological anti-Semitism that, of course, anti-Semitism has been around for millennia, um, but there's been something a little bit different. I'm actually working on an op-ed piece right now that um, that delves a little bit more into this, and it caused me to reread a great book by uh, Natan Sharansky called Identity. Uh. And in part of that book, he describes the history of anti-Semitism as one that actually changes in response to different times and eras. Okay. And he puts the the hinge point, what, what is the defining factor that changes the definition of anti-Semitism from one era to the next, next on the quest for identity? Okay. And in this case, this has really been, um, over these last few months, what's been revealed is the ideological corruption that we've talked about 
uh, in higher education for years now, Seth, Mm -hmm. this view of the world that sees all human interaction through these simplistic uh, Manichaean lenses that we've gotten essentially out of cultural Marxism, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where uh, every interaction, whether it's my conversation with you or someone's conversation with uh, a teacher-student or between nations can be seen through the lens of oppressor versus oppressed. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to, I mean, long decades ago, um, the French and German uh, cultural Marxists and philosophers, people like, uh, and we've talked about them as well, uh, the Brazilian Paulo Freire, we're talking about... Uh, Franz Fanon, Michel Foucault, right. yeah, right? That's right. right. Marcuse, yeah. I mean, Marcuse, all, right. all of them, right. And and all of them understood this as, as really the, in their own way, um, this quest for identity, mm-hmm. but identity could only be seen through the, this Manichaean um, view of the world. And now we've seen it made manifest in this new understanding of anti-Semitism that is not just the normal bigotry that we, we have known about and that has existed forever, but has brought in this whole other realm that we're hearing people talk about the, the state of Israel in such a way that victims innocent victims of a massacre could be seen as oppressors. You, um, and, yeah, and, and that's a different way of looking at the world, right? That's a, that's a way of understanding anti-Semitism that I don't think even 30, 40, 50 years ago at the height when colleges like Harvard, uh, going back a century ago, were not even allowing Jews into their university, or, or certainly reducing their numbers, um, this is something very different. And I, I think because it's being revealed through uh, the anti-Semitism, I think it's important for all Americans to understand that just to say that we've got an anti-Semitism problem on campus really doesn't get at what this anti-Semitism is and how it does differ from decades and centuries past. Pete, you have um, given voice to and articulated something that's been turning in my head that I could not find the words for. Um, So if you'll permit me and forgive me, I'd like to peel back a little bit more of this with you. You've you've articulated something I haven't heard much of, but a lot of people I think have been thinking of. You you gave it voice. Let me try it this way and see if I'm picking up what you're putting down. If you go back and watch... How did you put it? Your father's anti-Semitism, your grandfather's mm. anti If you go back and watch A Gentleman's Agreement from 1947, let's mm. say, you familiar with the movie a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yep. There was a, um, a shame about the anti-Semitism within those who were anti-Semitic. There was an, a little bit of a, of, a, of a hidden nature, a covert shame and embarrassment to it. There was no strutting about it. It right. was kind of, well, we know we shouldn't feel this way, but we kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, do. But, you know, it's going to be, we're going to put the quietest on it as much as possible. That is gone, or is mm-hmm. not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, I'll use the word again, strutting and bloodlust. 
a, a pride in it, right? That's what we mm-hmm. saw, isn't it? I saw Douglas Murray the other day. He's making the point, the point that there's not a country in the world where you couldn't go to a neighborhood and put up posters of a lost dog on lampposts, and those mm-hmm. those posters of the lost dogs would remain intact and integral until perhaps the rain washed them away or the dog was found or or ultimately lost. Couldn't do that with Jews. Right. Couldn't do that with Jews. And the leading, the leading, uh, the people leading the effort to take down those posters, college students and professors. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. below dogs. Weird. Yeah. It is. And I, I think it, it must strike all of us as Americans how, A, strange it is that this is happening uniquely on America's college campuses. Yeah. But to hear some of the terminology yeah. that's being used in the argument, yeah. you know, you hear Israel being described as a colonial settler nation. Yeah. These, these words around anti-colonialism, right. these, this framework of, again, oppressor versus oppressed, that's, that's just not normal rhetoric uh, that we use as, as people outside of academia. Right. And it does derive from a very well-worn, deep political philosophy that's been developed over decades, if not a century, that, again, is being made manifest in unique ways because of this relationship. It's the same thing that drives this view of the United States as being an oppressor nation, right? I think that's right. And it can be extrapolated across the entire Western civilization, right? I think that's right. I have done my best to pinpoint it to the 1950s in an effort by Nikita Khrushchev to kind of unite the third world around those notions of racism, imperialism, and colonialism. But it is the language that was picked up by your Franz Fanons of the world and the other scholars to justify every form of violent terrorism we've seen since the 1950s. i got to take a break. Can we pick up on this when we come around? Pete Peterson, thank you. Pete Peterson is my guest. I didn't know we'd go here, but that's how it works with Pete. You start on something and... You just go deeper and deeper, and you get smarter and smarter listening to him. Pete Peterson, at Pete4CA on Twitter X, also known as Twix. We'll be right back. <laughs> I don't think Pete Peterson was playing that kind of <laughs> – I love that. It's one of my favorites, though. It's one of my favorites. The Guardsman, I think it was, the new Guardsman, something like that. <laughs> Snoopy and the Red Bear and Christmas Spells. Welcome back. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine uh, School of Public Policy. And the website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu, just a fantastic institution. You get to hear him, and you get a sense of it. But if you learned of the scholars who are working and teaching there, everyone from Steve Hayward to Victor Davis Hanson and beyond. Pete, this um, this anti-colonial business we were talking about, and you were saying this isn't normal language. Um, and it's actually not even that normal academically, except mm-hmm. of late exclusively almost tied to the one country, one of the few countries, maybe two or three countries in the Middle East that really isn't a colonialist country by right. any definition. Right. But yeah. but feel free to say something about that if you want. But I want to stick with that Sharansky thing, too, or let me throw it in the mix a bit and ask you if this is – this is going to sound a little rough because I'm just learning it from you, and it's – I only have a tenuous grasp on it. So if it sounds rough, forgive me. 
But you, you were saying that Natan Sharansky was saying how anti-Semitism changes with the times. And it involves these quests for identity. I think that's how you put it. And you wedded right. that to this notion that it's not your father's or your grandfather's anti-Semitism. And I wonder if you think about that gentleman's agreement anti-Semitism, um, that Gregory Peck type of anti-Semitism. That was at a time when Jews were probably at one of their nadirs of strength. It's just two years after the Holocaust when that's kind of going on. They were weak and they were beaten. The anti-Semitism today comes when Jews perhaps have never been stronger with a country that has, let's make no bones about it, a lot of strength in Israel. Uh, nuclear weapons, God knows. And, 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 and I wonder if there's something there, too. The Jews will face anti-Semitism if they're weak, but they'll face even more virulent anti-Semitism if they're strong. Again, I'm sorry if that's rough. I'm just kind of putting this together as you're talking and just an early thought. And I wonder if that has any ring of veracity to you. Well, it does in this sense. And this and this really does connect to one of the major themes of Sharansky's book. Is he's making a human argument about identity Mm -hmm. that people will seek affiliation as just human nature. And certainly that begins with the family and then it radiates out to uh, community, state, nation, and then other, you know, religious faith, uh, the work we do, you know, we we are identity-seeking creatures. Right. And Sharansky asked the question, is it possible for many of these identities to be coalesced into a single nature, a nation. Is it possible for the state of Israel as a Jewish nation, yet one that is certainly very open, as you know, serving in the Knesset, you know, there, there are people serving in government from a variety of different religious backgrounds. It is a very diverse Nation. I, I think the Knesset has a higher percentage of Arab Muslims than the House of Representatives here has in the Black Congressional uh, Caucus, given the population. I think it does. I think it does. And so where where Sharansky is going is is to beg the question, is it still possible for a state to understand itself not only as a as a geographic place where mm-hmm. people live and, and find their connection, but also to stand as the the global home for a religious faith, mm-hmm. one that is certainly grounded in in history going back millennia, mm-hmm. um, but also one that is also a very current time and place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've heard some try to make the argument, and you know, some some of these protesters that you know, a, a reporter will go up and it'll be kind of a a person on the street interview, and they will say, you know, the the person protesting will say, "Oh, I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just anti-Zionist, mm-hmm. right? I'm yeah. against the state of Israel, right? And because it does this, this, and this, right? You know, that is, and essentially what." Sharansky, to go back to the the purpose of the book, is to peel back that onion to say, in most cases, that's not really a true bifurcation. Mm -hmm. It is near impossible to separate 
anti-Zionism from Mm anti-Semitism. And when, as we've seen in some of the debates, and you mentioned Douglas Murray before, I've also seen Ben Shapiro on on some debate stages with those saying, okay, well, um, where where do you see uh, the state of Israel existing in the future? Do you see a two-state solution? And most of the most of his interlocutors will say, no, there should no. not be a state of Israel. That's Once right. you push them to the wall, right? And in that, this this whole thing around identity really does get back to: is there a place? Can there be a place called Israel on this earth? Mm. And in the end, there are many millions who don't think that there should be. Mm. And that we should all, just as human beings, I'm, you know, whether you're Jewish or not, or even a person of faith or not, just as a human being, you really have to wonder, how could that be? Mm. How, how could we live in a world where we could foresee a place the size of New Jersey, just almost ipso facto, not having the right to exist? <laughs> and... And again, these are questions of identity, but they are also, I think, deeply human questions about questioning our own motives, and, and, and certainly for the progressive left, where a lot of this political and cultural ideology has, has come out of, this, this cultural Marxism has come out of, they really, we really need to be closely questioning them on their on their beliefs, because it's a really poisonous way to teach. And unfortunately, again, much of this has has been embedded in Middle East studies and political science departments of various college campuses. Um, But we really, that to me is the poisonous taproot of all of this. That's so interesting. So you're saying that there's a, a squint that goes to Israel that happens to no other nation and by yep. dint of that squint, you can recognize you're in the realm of anti-Semitism. Dennis Prager puts it this way. He says, um, I'll grant you that you can be a non-anti-Semite and not believe that Israel has a right to exist the moment you tell me that Pakistan doesn't have the right to exist, which came oh. into being the year before Israel. And I think that's a pretty helpful construction, actually. Let me take a quick break, and, and, and yep. we'll move on to a few other things, because there's so much I want to talk to you about, unless you want to respond to that, too, which you are always welcome to. Pete Peterson <clears throat> is my guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can follow him on Twitter, X, Twix, at Pete, the number four, C-A, and if you are interested in a career in public policy, there's nowhere better to go than Pepperdine. Be right back. Now that, now you're singing Pete's song. (laughs) Now you're on Pete's sheet of music. (laughs) See what we do for you, Pete. Love it. Deeply appreciate it. You bet, Jim. We deeply appreciate you. It's the least we can do. The other side of 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 the story is what is this nonsense about duplicative language? I mean, what is this euphemistic nonsense that used to cover what really is, I think it's fair to say, an academic felony in plagiarism? Wasn't it? Am I wrong? Am I overstating that plagiarism is an academic felony? Never mind three instances. Never mind 40. Right. Well, what's going on? The Harvard case is interesting. As I've been following that, the where the penny dropped on that, whole series of events was when 
a group of faculty, and by that I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or yes. 800 signatures. Yes, that's correct. By Harvard faculty. To the corporation, right? Yes, right. Right. Yes. In support of President Gay's position, right. uh, even after the initial revelations uh, were, were known. Uh-huh. But a letter from that faculty to the corporation and, and that leadership. And... For those maybe outside of fact, uh, out of uh, academia, um, it, it it may strike some as as strange that um, we may or may not have formal unions. Uh, some certainly do. There are unionized faculty and, and workers in, in academia, yeah. but that's that tension between uh, board leadership of a, of the nonprofit that is an academic institution and the faculty mm-hmm. is, is attention. Yeah. And that was, in my view, when that letter came down that quickly with frankly, not a lot of time for any of the faculty to understand the case themselves. Oh yeah. You got 800 faculty agreeing on a thing within the snap of a finger. That was weird. Yeah. That was a shot across the yeah. bow. Yeah. Because they weren't going to make the decision, right? That was going to be in the purview of the board. Right. But they were letting the board know, if you decide to go down this road, you're going to have a real fight on your hands. Yeah. And and the board flinched. Yeah. If they thought even early on that this was something, A, worth investigating, and B, rose to the position that, um, you know, we obviously saw... Stanford, you know, with their president, you know, some differences certainly in the case, but but certainly issues related to academic honesty. Yeah. Um, they flinched. Yeah. Uh, in the wake of that, but it but that letter again from the faculty was was really meant to uh, intimidate and let the board know that if they move forward on this. And now everybody looks foolish yeah. because with each passing day, there's another item that comes up that shows that there are some real mm-hmm. issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the faculty themselves look foolish mm-hmm. for, for writing that uh, uh, signatory statement without really knowing the facts themselves. Yeah. It's a situation of fouling your own nest in a way because I don't think they can ever really, if they continue to maintain this position, take plagiarism seriously at Harvard again. No, it, it really questions the entire, the the academic credibility yeah. of the entire operation. Yeah. To have that many people sign on to that without really, again, knowing the facts or even to the degree that they might have. I mean, I, I you probably told the story of, the Roland Fryer attacks, yeah, right, right. Uh, the economist there at Harvard, who uh, before Gay was even president, right. was in uh, Roland Fryer was in her sights as as someone who needed to be uh, pushed out of Harvard. So there had been, certainly been some evidence that uh, now President Gay was was ideological while she was on faculty, um, and then dean. But but this instance of the almost immediate reflexive move by the faculty and 800 signatures was really intended to 
prevent what happened, again, under different circumstances, but prevent what happened at University of Pennsylvania. It's odd to me. Let me take a break on this question. We can come back on it. It's odd to me, as I said it, to get 800 faculty members to agree on one thing and to agree so quickly. There must be some value that is so near and dear to them that it's in their vice grip beyond rational thought. And I wonder if we might put our finger on that here. <clears throat> How could you have such a knee-jerk unanimity of higher academic freedom? And if you saw Charles Fried's argument, oh my gosh. Okay, we'll be right back. <coughs> Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is my guest. One last uh, thought, if I can, unless you have more on the Claudine Gay um, issue of, I guess, what we now call duplicative language. Right. There was an interesting, um, is it tell I'm looking for, by Charles Freed. For those that don't know him, he's a professor at the Harvard Law School, used to serve on the Massachusetts Supreme Court, served in the Reagan Justice uh, Department, a very well-known establishment Republican conservative slash libertarian uh, legal scholar. And he was quoted in the New York Times, uh, Pete, as why he was unbothered by the charges of plagiarism here. He said because the attack came from the extreme right wing, and he said literally, if it came from some other quarter, I might be granting it some credence, but not from these right. people. So first, a lot is, is said there. So first of all, what's said is that Christopher Rufo and the Manhattan Institute is the extreme right wing. That's that's in and of itself interesting, <laughs> right? Right. right. <laughs> or, yeah. or, 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 or I don't know, Carol Swain, I suppose, is part of the extreme right wing. Second, this really is that point that there's only really one side in this country now that has the credibility of normative claims. And if you're going to be conservative, you're subhuman, you will get a second standard, a different standard. That's how I read it. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading it too too closely, but that's how I read that. Well, I, I certainly do agree that the attacks on Rufo and his team, as opposed to taking seriously the very clear evidence that he was presenting, you're right, does speak to the broader effort by Harvard to um, essentially attack the attacker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to blame the person that is has found this evidence. And, and note that nothing that Rufo and his team uncovered was ever questioned. Right. 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 Nobody said right. that. No one said you, you got know, it wrong, way, by the way. Right. Right. Yeah. Nobody said that, you know, this wasn't Claudine Gay's right. writing right. or this did not come from a paper that she yeah, wrote. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. It, it was really just part of this broader strategy of trying to avoid the reality of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in this, you know, part of this is ideological. There's a, there's, that's, that's certainly the case. But part of this is just a. 400-year-old great institution and bureaucracy that has lost its way and now is in a place where it's doing where it's it's realizing in the course of just a few years it is utterly damaging 
its brand and identity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that uh, early admission yes. applications to yes. Harvard are down yes. 17%. Yes. This is just Unheard the beginning yes. if this continues. Yes. Because the shoe, I think, is going to drop on the Claudine, on the President Gay piece. I, I would be surprised if with with the information that's continuing to come out, and you cannot believe Chris Rufo all you want, but as things start morphing into the Atlantic and into other... CNN. CNN of, and Jake Tapper. That's right. I mean, you know, there, there comes a certain point where, you know, uh, well-meaning liberals uh, working in other outlets uh, are going to be forced to pick up this... Yep. This story, yep. and and it is going to be increasingly difficult to fight. But again, I I really do think that when you've been a certain way for for decades, and you've always looked at people like a Chris Rufo as being not even worthy of listening to, right? Uh, because you've done that with conservatives both on your faculty and students. You know, we've talked about the challenges that conservative faculty and students face uh, in places like Harvard, right, where Harvey Mansfield, you know, was the last of that group um, uh, teaching there. You know, that's something that infects the entire uh, administrative apparatus. And uh, until it gets to a place where it's, it's unavoidable, and um, and so I, I I just think that it's it's tragic though it does speak to what happened in Pennsylvania right where yep. not only was McGill let go but the chair of the board stepped down yes. as well yes 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 that there was an understanding you know this probably sounds crass but there was an understanding that we've got to cut our losses here folks yeah if we if we keep going down this road the entire you know, social capital that we've built here at the University of Pennsylvania, a great Ivy League institution, stands to be lost. And Harvard has not gotten that message yet. Yeah, it took a Herculean effort to build these reputations, and, oh, and it took centuries, a, right? And it's and and in a sense, it required a Hercules when it came to Pennsylvania to say we need to clean these Augean stables, and right. and that's that. Yeah. It's. Let me throw one more thing at you, as long as I can keep you for a couple more minutes, if I can, Pete. Yeah. I asked you what the two, and we talked about what we think are probably the two most interesting discoveries out of academia under the hood. Um, might I suggest the two most interesting or prominent things we learned this year that emanated out of academia into the culture, I think in a good way, would be the understanding of the dangers of social media and the research on loneliness. Would you yeah. agree with that? Those two things are beginning to take root outside of the academic halls and into larger society in a good way? I do. Totally okay. agree. Okay. Um, the work of folks like Jean Twenge at UC San Diego, uh, her book out on social media and kids, and obviously people like uh, – Jonathan Haidt and others have been talking about this for years. But for the first time, you're actually seeing schools put this, and particularly elementary and high schools, put this into their own policies where they're not allowing so-called smartphones uh, to be used by their students while they're on campus. 
And I think this is a trend that's going to continue, especially as the social science data continues to increase. And of course, this discussion around loneliness as well is one that uh, cuts across all demographics and all age groups, certainly for the young. Uh, the connection between loneliness and social media usage is is pretty clear, but it's not it's not just the young in this nope. instance. Um, you know, this really goes into folks in their later stages of life. Yeah, uh, really all, really all. Yeah. So many. I mean, you and I have been pretty uh, kindred in the notion that we can talk about the youth crises, but we really need to also focus on the adult, which, by the way, cause youth <laughs> problems in the yeah. first. Pete. Bless you, sir. Thank you, sir. And Merry Christmas to you and your family. Merry Christmas to you and the group. Love talking to you. Be well. Okay. All right. I'll take it, young David. And I will close the show then um, with a definitive uh, piece that does not include Rudolph. Clement Clark Moore. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. And away to the window, I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh in eight tiny rain dear with a little old driver so lively and quick i knew in a moment he must be saint nick more rapid than eagles his coursers they came and he whistled and shouted and called them by name now dasher now dancer now prancer and vixen on comet on cupid on donder and blitzen to the top of the porch to the top of the wall now dash away dash away dash away all as leaves that before the wild hurricanes fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the coursers, they fled with the sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas, too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head when was turning around down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team, gave a whistle, 
and away they all flew, like the down of a thistle. But I heard him explain ere he drove out sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.